This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day Achilobator, or Achilobator, I've also heard quite a bit, and a bunch of dinosaur news, including some new dinosaurs. Also, maybe you're aware, this is episode 197, which means our 200th episode is coming up in just a few short weeks, and we have some special surprises in store to celebrate. Yeah, and we have to prepare these surprises too. <laughs> we do, but just know that if you are a patron, you will get something special. So if you would like to be part of that, make sure to sign up and become one of our patrons before our 200th episode at patreon.com slash I know Dino. And speaking of patrons, we have some patrons to thank for helping us create this episode. And this week we want to thank Chris, Nicholas, Blaze Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Glenn Liddell, Dashiell Hammond, Stego Sophie, Lalan, and Ayumi. And Ayumi just joined, so thank you. Yeah, thank you so much to everybody. We really appreciate it. Our community is growing, and it's been amazing. It has, and it is growing so quickly that we're running out of spots at our Stegosaurus level. And the Stegosaurus level is the lowest level when you can get a shout-out, which costs $5 right now. But... We always limited that to 50 individual people, so we thought about it, and what we're going to do is we're going to make a new level that also allows shout-outs if you're not interested in getting the ad-free or some of the higher tiers, but that one's going to cost $8, so if you want to get in on the cheaper early one, and it's kind of funny because, you know, Stegosaurus went extinct pretty early. Oh. So same kind of logic. Ankylosaurus <laughs> is going to be the name of the new level. You were just looking for new an excuse improved. for Ankylosaurus. I did have to work it in somewhere because we had this whole like scaling of dinosaurs and I missed Ankylosaurus somehow. So, yeah. So Ankylosaurus is going to be the new, you know, base shout out level at eight bucks. So if you want to join it before that happens get one of the last spots at the Stegosaurus level, then you should head over to patreon.com slash Dino. Now we've got some really cool new dinosaurs to get into the news. And thanks to Ada on YouTube for sharing with us. There are two new Alvarezsauroids, or Alvarezsauroids. It's kind of hard <laughs> to pronounce because it's, you know, a Z followed by an S. So do you make the Z sound or the S sound? I don't know any other words that have that going on. But... Alvarezsauroids are, if you're not familiar, a 
kind of group that's larger than just alvarosaurids. It's the same kind of thing that we talk about with all sorts of animals. Hadrosaurs and hadrosauroids. Or sauropods and well, usually we say sauropodomorphs, but same kind of thing. Alvarosauroids go all the way back to the late Jurassic from the end Cretaceous, so it's a pretty wide span of time, whereas alvarosaurids are only a small group at the late Cretaceous. It's actually really similar to tyrannosauroids and tyrannosaurids. And another funny thing about that is that when you reconstruct the alvarosaurian family tree or alvarosauroid tree, it is actually pretty close to tyrannosauroids. And if you look at the very earliest tyrannosauroids and alvarosauroids, they look pretty similar. They both have three-fingered hands because, you know, later the tyrannosaurs lost one and they ended up with those iconic two-fingered hands. Mm -hmm. But alvarosaurs <laughs> actually lost two of the fingers, so they're basically just down to one big claw oh, wow. situation. They're they one of the strangest dinosaurs. Well, they think that they use them for digging. Oh, okay. So they're the only modern animals that we know that use just one big claw are basically for like digging into termite nests and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they just need one big, basically, you know, shovel <laughs> to break through something. But yeah, they don't actually use it for grasping or anything like that. And at that branching point where you had tyrannosauroids and alvarosauroids, still relatively close in evolution, you have the Tyrannosaur guanlong, which is about hip height on a human. So, you know, kind of like a dog-ish size, hmm. big dog. <laughs> and a similar sized alvarosauroid was around at the same time called Haplochirus. And that was also in the late Jurassic. It looks actually superficially kind of similar to guanlong. They have different heads because guanlong has those cool crests on its head. But other than that, they're kind of the similar size. They both had a three-fingered hand. And the way I think of it is if you take your hand and you put down your pinky and your thumb, so you're just left with your pointer through your ring finger, it's the same sort of look. So the middle finger is the longest, and then the pointer and the ring finger are relatively even on either side of it. You see it on allosaurs too. They have kind of similar hands. So that's basically what kind of hand you had on both of these animals. But with Haplochirus, the pointer finger is now about twice as thick as your other two fingers. <laughs> so it's starting to look kind of weird, obviously different than things you see on other dinosaurs. And maybe that means that it was already starting to use it for digging or something. And then, like I said, over time, that one which I'm in my analogy as the pointer finger, continued to get even bigger and the other two basically shrunk away to nothing. So you just have one big pointer finger left. You there. Yeah, it'd be good for pointing at people. Except they didn't have really have an arm. Oh. So it was right up against their body. So. so when they dig, they have to use their whole body? I guess. I don't know. It's really weird. Maybe they just <laughs> didn't use it much at all is another possibility and it was just kind of in the way. They sound as weird as Therizinosaur. They're pretty weird, yeah. Although I think, I mean, Therizinosaur, it's like you can make up a lot of good reasons to have big claws. You can't make up as many good reasons to completely lose arms. <laughs> <laughs> but like kiwi birds, they don't have really any arm to speak of. So it's True. a similar kind of thing. They're just not using it. They're just eating insects and they have that long beak and they're good to go. An interesting question that's been asked for a while is what alvarosaurs evolved in between these early alvarosauroids and the later alvarosauroids or alvarosaurids in this case because there was a 70 million year gap between haplochirus which was the latest jurassic 
alvarosauroid that we knew, and Patagonicus, which was the earliest alvarosauroid we knew from the Cretaceous. So it's a very wide gap, and they said it was actually the largest gap of any theropod group. So it's a long, it's a lot of things can happen in that time period, and we really didn't know exactly how they evolved. But fortunately, they found two new alvarosauroids that kind of fill in the gap. Both of the dinosaurs are right in between those two dinosaurs I just mentioned in the middle of the early Cretaceous. The first is called Shiunicus pungi, and it was found in the far northwest China. And this is the first one I've seen that's actually really in the west, westernmost part of China. Usually we say western China, and people will even say it in their papers. But they really just mean that it's west of the major cities <laughs> in China, and all the major cities in China are on the east coast. So, so that's a lot of Western China. Yeah, it's kind of like the Midwest of the U.S., where it has like West in the name, but it's like not West at all. So this is actually in the West. It's near Kazakhstan. It's like way out there. It's at least a thousand miles west of most of the dinosaurs we talk about being discovered in China, and specifically, they found Shiunicus. In the Jungar Basin in Xinjiang, China, and Shiunicus comes from Xiyu, which is Mandarin for the Western regions, <laughs> and that obviously shows that there haven't been too many found in these Western regions. And then Onyx, which is Greek for claw, and the species name Pungai comes from Professor Peng Shiling, who was a local geologist, and they wanted to honor him by naming a dinosaur after him. Which is nice, especially because in China, a lot of times the second part, the species name, is also just after the region. So it's nice that there's something else going on. They've covered the whole region. Yeah, right. No more name. No more dinosaurs need to be named in all of Western China after an area. Yeah. Because they covered <laughs> Western China. <laughs> so they found the complete left hand, most of the skull, a femur, parts of the hips, parts of the feet, vertebrae. Some ribs and gastralia, which are those what they call belly ribs, basically things that hang. Yeah, I guess they kind of hang. I don't know if they're really connected to the rest of the skeleton, but they're sort of like the chest. We don't have that in our body, but if you had bones kind of covering your stomach in the front, that would be where the gastralia are. To me. Shiunicus looks remarkably like that late Jurassic Haplochirus, and it looked so similar to me that I had to put the silhouettes of the skeletons side by side to compare them to make sure that they hadn't made a mistake and copied it. And I think part of it is they use the exact same posture, probably so it's easy to compare. But they're very, very similar. The skulls look very similar. There are a couple small differences that you can see from just the simple silhouette, and then the arm is a little bit shorter. But other than that, they look really similar. From the femur circumference, they estimated that it weighed about 15 kilograms or 33 pounds. And just as a comparison, Alvarezsaurus, the later one where the name comes from, weighed only two kilograms or seven pounds.、Hmm. So it still had quite a bit of shrinking to do. It's kind of funny too, because if you think about these two groups that started out so similar in the Jurassic. Between Tyrannosauroids and Alvarezsauroids, and T. Rex got huge and shrunk down to two fingers, and Alvarezsauroids got tiny and shrunk down to one finger. It's just such a funny, yeah, like, divergence.、Difference. Yeah, like how does this happen? Evolution is so crazy. But then they also did a bone slice, and they found that it was about nine years old, and they said that means it's a subadult most likely, also based on the bone tissue. 
on its hand, it still has fingers like our pointer through ring finger where the middle finger would be the longest. And like I said, its arm is slightly smaller than Haplochiris. That's probably the most obvious difference between the two because the skull overall looks mostly the same as Haplochiris. But there are a few areas that have some similarities with the later Cretaceous alvarosauroids. So there's a little bit of this mixing, missing link sort of feature to it. But overall, it still looks a lot like the early alvarosauroids. Now, on the other hand, we've got Bonnicus wulatensis, and it was found about a thousand miles, actually more like maybe 1400 miles, very far east of this previous one in Inner Mongolia, which is often described as Northwest China, even though clearly it's not West. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. It's the part of China that's just south of Mongolia. And Bonnicus comes from Bon, which in Mandarin means half. And that's because of its transitional features. Oh, it's halfway. Yep. <laughs> and onyx, again, for claw. Then Wulatensis is after the county that it was found in. Just how they're normally named. Yes. But this one's cool, too. I like Bonnicus. Mm -hmm. It sounds good. And, you know, Bon is a common word in Mandarin for middle. So it's, it's clever. Yeah. Well, for half. Zhong is middle. Yeah, you're right. Thanks. <laughs> Now, with this one, they also looked at the femur circumference and estimated that it weighed about 24 kilograms or 53 pounds, so a little bit bigger than the other one. And from a thin bone slice, they found that it was about eight years old, also a subadult. But the most interesting thing to me is how its hand looks. So compared to the other ones where the middle finger is the longest, on this one, it's now shrunken quite a bit. So now the pointer finger is by far the longest. The middle finger is next, and then the ring finger is the smallest. So it's getting to more of an alvarosaurid sort of hand. I'm shrinking. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> or the pointer finger is growing, depending on which way you look at it. Yeah. Although it wouldn't have noticed. You never notice as you're evolving. No, because even one individual doesn't have any sort of difference from the previous <laughs> one. So I think that's why they named this one that halfway genus because its hand literally looks like halfway in between the early alvarosauroids and the late alvarosauroids. So it is a pretty excellent transitional fossil. Bonicus also has a couple other differences from Shionicus. So in those awesome silhouettes that they often make to show which bones they found and they'll color the ones that they found white and then the ones that they didn't find gray, but they also kind of give you an idea of what they thought the overall dinosaur looked like in a black silhouette. It's one of the coolest parts of these papers. They did one for both Sheunicus and Bonicus, and the one for Sheunicus, like I said, looks exactly like that old Haplochiris. So when you look at it, it's like, oh, this isn't a bunch of new information. It's basically like which bones they found. But Bonicus looks totally different. It has very different vertebrae than the other two, and because of that, they kind of constructed it with a more ostrich-like neck and posture, which is what you see in the later alvarosauroids. The S-curve? Yeah. In the and, neck, yeah. And then it has a smaller head to kind of go along with it, too. Hmm. Whereas the other two are more of like a horizontal sort of typical posture that you see in something like a T-Rex, where its tail and its head are relatively on the same plane. Its head doesn't pop up <laughs> like a swan <laughs> kind of thing. They're not really sure about the exact ages of these dinosaurs, though, unfortunately. So there are huge error bars on Shunicus. 
They think it might be as old as 130 million years ago or as young as 113 million years ago. So, quite the range. Yeah, it's almost 20 million years. And Bonicus, on the other hand, they put between 126 and 113 million years. So, still a large range. And because of that, you can't even tell which one's older. So, even though if you looked at them and you thought of evolution as happening as this nice linear sort of thing, which they kind of try to present in the paper, Bonicus could be significantly older. It could be as much as 10 million years older than Sheunicus, which would be kind of weird using that sort of thinking. But evolution isn't that clean. It's pretty weird. They're almost certainly on different branches. It's really unlikely that Bonicus evolved directly from any other dinosaur that we know. So it could very well be younger and just have more derived characteristics. But on the other hand, it could follow the way that they kind of present in the paper, which would make Bonicus up to 20 million years younger than Sheunicus if it's at that end of the spectrum. But no matter what, both of these are at least 30 million years younger than Haplochirus. So they're still filling in that gap and giving us lots of useful information. We just don't really know which one came first and exactly where they fit. Need more fossils. Yeah, right. Actually, in this case, I think we need better study of the sediment in the area to determine the exact age of the formation. That too. But more fossils wouldn't hurt. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> and the last thing they point out, everybody loves to point this out when it shows that the dinosaur group originated from their country. So in this case, all these early alvarosauroids came from China, and then the later ones we see in Argentina. Because obviously, if you think about it, it's named after a guy named Alvarez. There are a lot of people named Alvarez in China. That's a South American kind of name. So they point out that these alvarosauroids must have evolved in China, most likely, and then eventually dispersed to the rest of the world, especially Argentina. So pretty cool. It is. Alvarosauroids are some of my favorites because they're so weird. They're like little weird monsters without arms and giant weird claws. Alvarezsaurus is one of the dinosaurs in that Saurian game, too. Oh, it is? Really? Mm -hmm. I think so. They added it. Oh, interesting. Maybe it's one that you can eat or something. Yeah, it looks like it's rumored to be in there, but we don't know exactly how yet. But there's some illustrations that they've done out there, and it looks pretty cool. Nice. There are some other new dinosaurs that I'm going to have to talk about next week because these put me down quite a rabbit hole of alvarosaurs. <laughs> That's every new dinosaur. Yeah, yeah, it is. But usually there's only like one a week and I can keep up. But then this one paper had two alone and then there are other papers. It's out of control. I think it's a good thing. It is a good problem to have. In other news, Walking with Dinosaurs, the Arena Spectacular is currently on tour in Europe. If you're in Europe... Highly recommend it. We saw it when it was in California, and it's a great show. It is really good. Yeah. I think they're still my favorite dinosaur animatronics that I've seen. Well, like they're next so level. big. They're life-size, and they, the way they move, so fluid. Yeah, they have a full-size T-Rex that walks. Yeah. <laughs> Some full-size sauropods, too. Oh, yeah. There's a video by Tech Insider that shows what goes on behind the scenes in the show. The video is like six and a half minutes, and they talk about how big dinosaurs like the T-Rex are controlled by three operators. You've got a driver to move the dinosaur, which is hidden underneath the dinosaur, and we kind of guessed that, but it just looks like such a small space. It looks like they must lay down like prone and then have their face kind of sticking out in the front so that they can see where they're going. Yeah, it's crazy. 
And then there's two puppeteers in what they call the voodoo lounge. And one controls the lead rig that controls the head movement. The other controls the neck. And they can also push down on the body so they can swing the tail and twist the body around. The remotes are so cool, too. Yeah. Because it's like they made a little miniature skeleton sort of structure for its neck so that when they move it, it moves it all, like at all those little joints Yeah. correctly. It's so cool. <laughs> and there's also a way to control the mouth and they can make the eyes blink and move. And then, of course, the dinosaur sounds. Yeah. And I think they want to do it all on the fly rather than doing it in a pre-programmed way yeah. because they tour to all these different arenas and then they're also interacting with humans on the stage. Mm -hmm. So they kind of need to be able to interact and not just like follow a pre-scripted route. Yeah. However the audience is feeling. It's so cool. There's smaller dinosaurs too. And then, and then those only have one performer inside, such as the baby T-Rex. And in those, you move the whole body to move the tail, and the performer is strapped in from the waist through the shoulders, and they can also move the eyes and jaws from inside the suit. And it's really heavy. The baby T-Rex suit weighs 40 kilograms or 88 pounds, so you, performers, they have to train and they have to be in pretty good shape, and then they spend 3 to 15 minutes inside at a time. I think that's pretty much the same as the baby T-Rex we had at our wedding. <laughs> yeah. Like a similar weight and all the same kind of controls and everything. And you can't spend too much time inside. Yeah, because they had, what, I think there were two or three people there that they swapped out like every 15 to 20 minutes mm -hmm. because you need a break after carrying this basically 80 pound backpack. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a small mesh area where they can see in the body, which is a little different from how I've seen it in other costumes. Yeah, I think usually it's cameras. Yeah. The whole production costs about $15 million, and then each dinosaur is worth about $1 million. Yeah, that's crazy. They look like they're worth that much money with the, <laughs> the guy driving it underneath and the way that the legs move like it's actually walking. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're impressive. It is. In museum news, Grand Rapids Public Museum is going to have a new exhibition called Expedition Dinosaur starting October 14th. There's going to be... a life-size animatronic dinosaurs and then if you visit you can control some of them and then there's other stuff talking about new research methods or displays of dinosaur movement and digestion and then they teach about the history of paleontology so you can buy tickets now they're gonna have a special breakfast with the dinos the morning <laughs> before the exhibition opens and there's also tickets for an opening party later that day breakfast with the dinos it's more like breakfast near the dinos yeah yeah you might have <laughs> some dino experts i'd don't know the details. Yeah. The Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History got a $160 million donation from Edward P. Bass, who's a, cow. Yeah, a billionaire and philanthropist who graduated from Yale in 1967. Is he still a billionaire after giving away $160 million? Yes. So is he a multi-billionaire? Probably. Oh. I, I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't looking into him. I was looking into the museum. <laughs> That's great. I, you can see where I would have immediately gone in this. <laughs> <laughs> so the museum is going to have a two-year renovation that will include remounting their brontosaurus to be in a more natural pose. It was mounted in the late 1920s, and in the remount, the brontosaurus is going to have a longer tail and then be, that will be held up off the ground. Yeah, I can imagine exactly what a 1920s brontosaurus looks like yeah <laughs> like the, a sagging bridge or something <laughs> yeah 
They also plan on expanding visitor galleries by 50% and then making it easier for the apparently 25 to 30,000 students who visit each year. Hmm. So they're going to have a dedicated K-12 education center. They will, however, keep their Age of Reptiles mural by Rudolph F. Zallinger. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that one's pretty iconic, so you wouldn't want to cover that up. Even if it is not the most current science, it's still like a very good snapshot. And they're like... I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of dinosaur toys that are based specifically on that mural. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's iconic. You can't get rid of that thing. <laughs> so it's going to take two years for these renovations, but I was not able to find out when that's going to start. Yeah. I mean, if they just got this huge chunk of change, you know, you want to plan it properly. Yeah. <laughs> don't just rush into it. $160 million. That is a crazy amount of money. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's specifically, yeah, it says to the Yale Peabody Museum. So it's not just to Yale. So that means they have, they're going to spend all that money in that museum. Mm -hmm. They might not have to spend it all on the public part, though. They might spend some of it on updating the collection space and stuff like that. Maybe research for the fossils that they have in their collections. Yeah, good point. Still, I bet that's going to be an awesome museum. Yes. Next, congrats to Drumheller's world's largest dinosaur structure, which reached 2 million visitors recently. Wow. Yeah. So this giant T-Rex, if you haven't seen it, it's basically a giant T-Rex in Drumheller. It's been around since October of 2000. It's four times larger than an actual T-Rex was. <laughs> it cost them over a million dollars to build, and 15% of the proceeds have gone back to the community. So that's nice. Nice. And the two millionth visitor got a package. They walked up. There's a bunch of steps that you walk up inside the dinosaur. And they got to the top and they got a package with family passes to the Royal Tyrol Museum and two nights at a Drumheller Hotel and world's largest dinosaur merchandise. So oh. Nice surprise. Yeah, we were two of those people that got them closer to that. Yeah. If we hadn't gone, it would have been somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, when you think about so that. they owe us one is what I'm saying. I don't think they do. <laughs> That is a really fun place to go to, even though it's a very cheesy, you know, vertical T-Rex. It's pretty enjoyable. You get a nice view. And when you walk through the inside, they have like the, the insides painted with different chambers. Like you go through the stomach and it feels all stomachy. Yeah. <laughs> and then you come out through the jaws. Mm-hmm. Hang out in its mouth. A little while ago, there was a story going around about a T-Rex on fire in Colorado and recently another T-Rex caught on fire, but this what? time in Sibay, Russia. There's a video going around that shows a T-Rex catching fire at an amusement park and then that led to an evacuation of the park. There was a lot of smoke and ash. The fire was apparently caused by sparks from nearby welding works, mm. but luckily no one was hurt. The T-Rex was the biggest of the 15 statues in the park. I think it was the only one that was on fire. Okay, well, at least that's good. That's similar to the T-Rex, the other one you talked about, where mm -hmm. that was the only one. But I think they said that was a mechanical, like, electrical fault or something that they thought lit it on fire. Yeah, in a recent news report about that, it said the park thinks an electric issue caused that T-Rex to burn. Yeah, and then there was the one also at Field Station Dinosaurs, which I think was welding-related, and they burned down, I want to say, a sauropod. So... You gotta be careful with these big animatronics or just sculptures in general. Yeah. In lighter news, there's a couple, <laughs> Devin and Chelsea, who rode the Jurassic Park ride at Universal Studios Hollywood 62 times wow. over a span of 13 hours. Oh, no. A few days <laughs> before the ride was set to shut down to make room for a new ride. 
I thought it was going to be 62 times over the course of like 30 years. Yeah, no, 13 hours. <laughs> One, that's a long day. On their 61st ride, Devin proposed to Chelsea by showing his shirt in the ride photo, and it read, Will you marry me in the, that Jurassic Park font? Ah, that's cool. Yeah. What if she got tired after 60 rides and didn't want to go on it again? I'm sure he would have found a way to convince her. Just one more. <laughs> and Chelsea saw the photo, and then Devin proposed with an amber ring, which is oh. like the one in the movie. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, and then they rode the ride a 60-second time so that they could break the record. Um. And then they rode away after the ride in a Jurassic Jeep Wrangler that had the sign just engaged on the back, and then someone in a T-Rex costume chased <laughs> after them. <laughs> Pretty yeah. epic proposal. That is cool. <laughs> Then it makes sense. They were probably planning to do 62 times the whole time so mm -hmm. that they could break a record. Is that like the record for most in a day? It must be. It's 13 hours is pretty much the whole time the park's open. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if if it was crowded at a certain point, they could just get to the front of the line because people knew what they were trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's hard to do that because, yeah, that works out to doing it once every 12 and a half minutes. That's pretty rapid fire. It must have been a very not busy day. Or maybe they bought like that thing where you can skip the line. You can never totally skip the line with those things, but maybe. Sometimes, I think you can at Universal Studios. I don't think you can at Disney. Oh, okay. Well, actually, you can at Disney, too, if you pay enough. Oh, really? Yeah, you can get like a little VIP thing where somebody escorts you to the front of all the lines. Huh. But it's really expensive. <laughs> they must have had something. Because otherwise, I mean, the ride takes a little while, too. So that's only like five minutes worth of waiting in line each time. Well done, Devin and Chelsea. <laughs> in other news, on Ukaloosa Island in Florida, you can buy a fiberglass T-Rex head from resident Jason Lamp, if you're in the market for a giant T-Rex head, <laughs> whose name is Rexy, and is 7 feet or 2.1 meters tall and weighs more than 500 pounds or 227 kilograms. Easy. <laughs> Lamp bought it a year ago from Wild Willie's Adventure Zone when they needed to remodel and then has just kept it in his backyard, but now he needs to move to a different city and he can't take the head with him, so he's looking for the right person to take it off his hands. Is that the one where the bottom jaw is kind of like split in half so that you can crawl through the bottom without getting hit on the teeth? Yes. It's kind of weird looking. Yeah, it's not that friendly looking. <laughs> but you could do some interesting stuff with it. It looks like it'd be a good, like, little tiny playhouse kind of thing for a kid. Yeah, or some kind of camp out or something. Or doghouse. Yeah. <laughs> and last, Parkasaurus, a sim game where you can build your own dinosaur park, is opening up early access on Steam September 25th. Hmm. It's going to last early access between six and eight months, though most of the planned features will exist. You can build your own park from scratch, hire and manage staff and make money, and then time travel to collect some eggs and hatch and raise the eggs and create your exhibits. And then, of course, you have to worry about dinosaurs escaping. Yeah. Early access costs about $20, and the video they showed is really cute and colorful. You've got bright pink triceratops and a blue stegosaurus. There's the velociraptor wearing a rainbow hat. Oh, weird. All kinds of stuff. Very cutesy. That reminds me of Dino Park Tycoon more than like the recent Jurassic Park Evolution style. Yeah. Cutesier. I kind of worry though about, because there are several of these companies all making these Jurassic Park builder sort of games, but since the official one came out before all of them, I wonder how many people are still going to be in the market for a game like that. Depends how much you want to play with dinosaurs. Yeah, I suppose. Some of these are waiting games, too. You have to wait for something to happen. So while you're waiting, you might as well play a different dinosaur game. Oh, jeez. 
I'm not really into that whole waiting part of games. <laughs> That's how they get you. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense in freemium because it's like they're trying to get you to pay for stuff. But when you already bought the game, it's like, let me fast forward. Mm, I'm trying to have fun here. <laughs> I'm not trying to wait around. <laughs> Sometimes it's for the best. You have something you need to do or you could play this dinosaur game. Oh, but I have to wait. All right, I'll do this thing. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> for people that lack impulse control. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Achilobator, which was a request from Albertosaurus sarcophagus. So thanks. It was a dromaeosaurid theropod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia, and it was found in 1989 on a Mongolian and Russian field expedition in the Bayan Shira formation of Dornogovi province. It was named in 1999 by Altengaril Perl, Mark Norrell, and Jim Clark. Only the holotype has been found, and that includes part of the upper jaw with teeth, vertebrae, rib fragments, pelvis, left femur and tibia, hind limbs, forelimbs, and shoulder. It's estimated to be 16.4 to 19.7 feet, or 5 to 6 meters long, which is pretty large for a dromaeosaur. Mm -hmm. And it may have weighed up to 771 pounds, or 350 kilograms. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. The type species is Achilobator gigantus. And its name means Achilles hero, named after Achilles, the ancient Greek warrior who fought in the Trojan War, and the Mongolian word batar, which means hero. This name is because of its large Achilles tendon, which is connected to its sickle claws. It probably had a robust tendon because it was a large dromaeosaur. 
The species name comes from the Greek word gigantus, which means giant, and refers to Achillovator's large size for a dromaeosaur. It was a bipedal carnivore, and it had serrated, recurved teeth. It hunted and used its sickle-shaped claws. Its femur was 3% longer than its tibia, which is rare for dromaeosaurs. Its pelvis has primitive characteristics compared to other dromaeosaurs. It had a wide expansion at the end compared to other dromaeosaurs, and the pubis points vertically down, though other dromaeosaurs and birds have a pubis that points backwards. Some scientists think Achillobatora was a fossil chimera, but not everyone believes this. There's many fossils that were found that were semi-articulated, and they have the same color and preservation. Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place as Achillobatora included the Therizinosaurid, Segnosaurus, the Dinochirid Garadimimus, the Ankylosaurid Talarurus, sauropods, and Tyrannosauroids. And our fun fact of the day is the difference between viviparity, oviparity, and ovoviviparity. It's quite a mouthful. Yeah, that one's really hard. And <laughs> I have to look into it because last week you talked about how one of the animals might have been oviviparous. So... I'll start at the simple end. Yeah, you thought I was just saying it wrong. I did, because I'd never heard of it before. So viviparity comes from vivus for living and perir for to bear young. So obviously that means that they give live birth. So this is something that placentals do. You know, we when we give birth, the animal <laughs> comes out <laughs> without an egg on it. It's ready to go. It's alive. All that good stuff. Whereas oviparity means that you lay eggs so that's what birds do what we think most dinosaurs did all that kind of good stuff the weird one is ovoviviparity and that means that you develop an egg inside the parent but you don't lay the egg and then kind of brood it outside of the body it actually basically hatches inside the parent so you don't it's like in between live birth and laying an egg. There's an egg, but it stays inside the parent. It's very strange. So there's no connection between the young and the parent while it's inside the body. It's got a non-permeable, basically, membrane. I mean, I guess air has to go through it, but it's not like getting nutrients from the parent. All the nutrients that are needed are already inside that egg, enclosed inside the parent. Really weird. And because it's a combination of viviparity and oviparity. There's also different ways to say ovoviviparity. Sometimes it's called ovoviviparity or just oviviparity. So it's kind of like viviparity but with an egg involved. And then sometimes I think the most simple version is aplacental viviparity because <laughs> the it's most simple. Well, I mean it's viviparity, but there's no placenta. Yeah. It's in an egg instead. So yeah, but they're all very confusing. So ovoviviparity combines really both of these. Pretty interesting. And you, you see this pop up in all sorts of different lineages. Even some insects give live birth, like aphids, which I had no idea about so until weird. I went down this rabbit hole. Yeah, it's so strange because you think of insects, they always lay eggs, but they don't. So dinosaurs could have done any of these three. It's so hard to tell from the fossil record. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to be included in our special treat for our patrons for our 200th episode, don't forget to sign up. Patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again and until next time.
You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.